Hello, and welcome to the podcast, An Intelligent Look at Terrorism. I'm your host, Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Ottawa, Canada, and I should add a former strategic analyst with the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, or CSIS, from 2001 until 2015. This is podcast 18, and in today's episode, I want to look at an issue that is getting a lot of attention these days when it comes to those that talk about terrorism, and more importantly, what should we do about terrorism, and on top of that, what kinds of resources or priorities should counterterrorism get. And that particular issue is whether or not security services like my former one in CSIS or the FBI or MI5 or whatever intelligence or law enforcement agency you want to talk about that has a role in detecting and countering terrorism, whether or not those agencies have the right resources focused on the right problem. To put it very simply, there's a great debate and it's growing in Canada and in the United States and in Western Europe, among other places, that claims that we've been putting our eggs in the wrong basket, i.e., We've been focusing on a particular brand of terrorism, Islamist extremism, jihadism, whatever you want to call it, when in fact we should be repositioning or refocusing the resources we have to a different form of terrorism, which again is called a number of things, far-right terrorism, white nationalist terrorism, white supremacist terrorism, neo-Nazi terrorism, or analogous terms like that. The way the argument goes is that ever since 9-11, and I'm recording this podcast on September the 12th, i.e. one day after the 18th anniversary of those tragic events back in 2001, that we've been stuck in this hole. We have had this increasingly unnecessary attention or emphasis being placed on the jihadis, like those that were responsible for the planes flying into the towers in New York and into the Pentagon in Washington, and that In a sense, we've kind of been asleep at the switch by not reassessing, reprioritizing, and reassigning resources to another threat that is out there. And there's no question it's a real threat, and we'll get back to that, i.e. the far-right phenomenon. I've been taking the task for this for, for quite some time. I've been accused of thinking historically or writing on the coattails of 9-11, and there are those that say, my God, it's been 18 years, it's almost two decades, can we please rethink how we're going to do this? And there's no question, there's no question, and I have written many blogs and given many interviews in this regard that there are a lot of things that have been done well in the ill-named war on terrorism. I won't go over that debate again, but there have been many things that have been done wrong, such as invading and occupying countries, such as drone strikes or airstrikes that go awry and kill civilians. So it has been far from perfect, our response to terrorism since 9-11, and there is an increasing chorus out there that we need to rejig the whole effort, take some resources away from the jihadi threat and to reapply them onto the far-right threat. We'll talk about resource allocation in a second. But I want to really just look at this question from an empirical perspective perspective from a statistical one. I'm a huge believer in data. When I worked for the security service, I was drowning in data when it came to information on Canadians who were radicalizing to violence, some of whom went on to plan terrorist attacks like the Toronto 18 or the Via Passenger uh, couple, some of whom went abroad to join terrorist groups such as Islamic State or Al-Qaeda or Al-Shabaab. 
a number of which have actually died in terrorist attacks and killed innocent civilians. And the way that I got my understanding of this phenomenon of radicalization to violence, which led to my very first book, The Threat From Within in 2015, was based on actual cases. Of course, I can't talk in great detail about those cases because the information remains classified. But nevertheless, my approach to understanding terrorism as a phenomenon and understanding radicalization to violence as a phenomenon is drawn almost exclusively from a data-centric approach, meaning I don't hew to any particular theoretical line. I don't worry about competing theories of radicalization. In fact, I have poo-pooed and been quite critical of some of the approaches out there as I feel they have not been grounded in data and they've been removed from the, the criticality that is data. So if we look at data, just pure numbers in terms of terrorism in the world, recently, 2016, 2017, 2018, there have been a number of stories that have pointed out that, in fact, there's been a decrease in terrorist attacks. There's been a decrease in fatalities from terrorist attacks globally. There's one reliable source that says that in 2017, this is the last year for which we have really, really good data, that for the third consecutive year worldwide, there was a decrease of 27% in the number of people who died in terrorist attacks, described broadly. That number, as it's, this is hard to measure. This is the best of our, our ability to gather information, often in war-torn zones. So take the numbers with a grain of salt, but the number that I've been dealing with is somewhere just south of 19,000 people are believed to have died in terrorism or from terrorist attacks in 2017. And that, as I said, represented a little more than a quarter decrease from 2016. So this, in fact, is really good news that those who are, who are dying from terrorists, the numbers are falling because obviously were the numbers to increase, that would be a bad news situation. Here's where it gets really interesting, though. According to the same data, uh, in at least 67 countries, there was at least one, more than one death from terrorism. 67 countries, that's about a third of the number of countries on Earth. And in fact, 98 countries, or almost half, recorded at least one terrorist attack in 2017. Now, have a listen to this. 10 countries out of 200 odd countries on Earth accounted for 84% of all deaths from terrorism in 2017. And in five countries, they suffered more than 1,000 deaths each. So in five nations on Earth, more than 1,000 people in each nation died from terrorism. And it gets worse, as I'll point out. Those five countries should be come as a surprise to no one. They are Afghanistan, Iraq, Nigeria, Somalia, and Syria. And in Afghanistan and in Nigeria, the statistics that I've seen indicate that in fact the death toll was north of 6,000 people. So 6,000 people died in terrorism in both Afghanistan and Iraq in 2017. And then it goes down from there. Let's get back to this issue of whether or not counterterrorism resources, be they military or civilian, civil society, whatever, are being dedicated to the right problem. If you look at those five countries I've named, Afghanistan, Nigeria, Iraq, Syria, and Somalia, how many of those deaths do you think came at the hands of the far right? White supremacists, neo-Nazis, white nationalists. 
I'm going to guess pretty close to zero. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the vast majority, 99.9% .9 of the thousands of people, more than 10,000 people who died in terrorist attacks in those five nations in 2017 were in fact killed by Islamist extremists. Where do I draw my, my speculation on? Well, what's the biggest terrorist group in Afghanistan? Well, it's the Taliban, an Islamist extremist group. And in addition, there's Islamic State in Khorasan, Islamic State affiliate in the eastern part of the country. What's the biggest terrorist group in Syria? Islamic State. What's the biggest terrorist group in Somalia? Al-Shabaab. What's the biggest terrorist group in Iraq? Islamic State. What's the biggest terrorist group in Nigeria? Boko Haram with a smaller contribution from an Islamic State affiliate called Islamic State in West Africa. So right there, the vast majority of deaths from terrorism in 2017, worldwide, statistically speaking, came at the hands of Islamist extremists. That's a fact. Those are numbers. This is an interpretation. This is actually numbers that we can actually deal with. So where does this leave us in this debate about the far right versus Islamist extremism, where the resources should be? Well, there's no question that if we were to expand our look at terrorist attacks in 2017 to other countries in the world, that yes, there have been attacks carried out by what we would call the far right in countries like Canada. For example, in my own country, in January of 2017, there was an attack in a mosque in Quebec City in which six people were killed and about a dozen injured by an individual who, by all accounts, was probably a sympathizer of some kind of far right or white supremacist ideology. He was not charged with terrorism under the Canadian Criminal Code, but that's for all kinds of other reasons. I think it can be concluded that he certainly wasn't a jihadi, and he certainly wasn't a Hindu extremist, and he certainly wasn't a Buddhist extremist. So there's a good chance, in fact, given some of the things he was downloading from the internet, some of the people he was following, I think it's a safe conclusion to draw that he was a white supremacist. And this is why he carried out his lethal attack on the mosque in January of that year. We've seen other attacks more recently in the United States, such as a synagogue in Pittsburgh. We saw some shootings in El Paso, Texas, that were tied to white supremacist anti-immigrant feeling. Those are 2019, so not included in the 2017 data. Therefore, you, you, you have to conclude that, at least in some parts of the world, it's, it is true. There have been attacks by white supremacists and their ilk, which have resulted in deaths. These are terrorist attacks, as any definition of terrorism could be used, which has been motivated by that panoply of white nationalist philosophy, white nationalist ideology. But again, if you compare the numbers worldwide, it's a no-brainer. 80 or 90% of people killed internationally, worldwide, even today in 2019, are killed by Islamist extremists. You read the news outside of North America, outside of Western Europe, on any given day. Read what's happening in Afghanistan. Read what hap what's happening in Somalia. Read what's happening in Mali, Niger. Read what's happening in Nigeria. Read what's happening in Southeast Asia. Read what's happening in Pakistan. And it is simply impossible to conclude anything but the fact that terrorism, as carried out by Islamist extremists, by jihadis, predominates. These are numbers. These are statistics. You can't make these up. You can't ignore them. What we're faced with, then, is when we talk about terrorism and we talk about where to put terrorism resources, 
there are two really important things to consider. First is you have to determine when you're talking about deployment of resources, what particular geographic or political entity are you talking about? So if you're in the United States, for example, in 2019, it'd be a really good idea for the FBI and its partners to have a significant percentage of the resources they devote to terrorism looking at the far right. There have been a number of attacks since the Trump administration took power. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of hate groups identified by the Southern Poverty Law Center, very strange title for a group that looks at terrorism and intolerance in the United States. And these groups are largely white supremacists or white nationalist groups. So yes, the FBI would have to devote a significant percentage of its resources to monitor and thwart attacks carried out by those. At the same time, if you look at the U.S. Department of Justice, will regularly issue pronouncements, public statements, in which they've announced the arrest of an Islamist, someone who's inspired by Islamic State or inspired by Al-Qaeda, who's been trying to carry out an attack. Which leads to the second point about resources, and what, which people don't understand, is that you just don't pull resources from a vacuum. They come from somewhere. So if the FBI or CSIS or MI5 or whatever domestic security service or law enforcement agency is being asked to redeploy resources from problem A to problem B, they have to come from somewhere. We're in an age now, well past 9-11, where these organizations were growing exponentially. That means that they have to cover a whole host of things with existing resources. In other words, and I've, I've used this phrase an awful lot, you're essentially robbing Peter to pay Paul. You're taking resources from one important priority and placing them on a second important priority. Now, you do that for all kinds of reasons. You do that for all, after all kinds of analysis and assessment. But what that means is that priority A, which has been ruling the roost for a long time, is no longer deemed as important. Therefore, it has fewer resources because you decide to put them on priority B. Priority A hasn't gone away. It's still there. The actors that are still keen to carry out terrorist attacks against innocent civilians are still there. And when you take resources away from it, you are in a poor position to identify and neutralize those terrorist plots. So what happens is that you take away from A to give to B, and then six months down the road, there are some successful attacks by the guys in Group A again, which leads to calls for redeploying yet again resources. So you take them from Pot B, put them back on A, until such time as the people that are in that B group, they somehow go undetected and carry out an attack, which leads for cries to remove them from A. And you see where this is going, right? This is a never-ending shuffle between two equally important priorities. Resource allocation is something which I think people really have a hard time understanding, and they think it's simple. It's not. As I said, I'd be very surprised if any of my former colleagues in the security intelligence world are getting more resources anytime soon. There's another issue here that when we talk about what's more important, jihadis versus far right, is something which I find fascinating over the past, well, a couple of years, but I think it really came, uh, came home this, this spring. So we had an attack by a white nationalist, an Australian white terrorist in Christchurch, New Zealand, in which he attacked two mosques. And if you recall the manifesto that he wrote, it was taken down, but it's still available. In the manifesto, 
He cited all kinds of garbage, which is what these guys do. But one of the interesting citations made by this terrorist was he referred to as a terrorist attack in Stockholm in the spring of 2017, in which an Uzbek Islamist extremist uh, drove a truck into a market killing, I don't forget what the death toll was, but one of the dead was a young girl, 12 or 13 year old girl. I think her name was Ellen or something like that. He cited that attack as inspiration for what he did in Christchurch. Because this young Swedish girl died at the hands of an Islamist extremist, I am justified in entering into a mosque, obviously full of Muslims, at prayer with an automatic weapon and take revenge, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, against Muslims because of this death of this Swedish girl at the hands of a fellow Muslim who happened to be an Islamist extremist. So we're getting this sort of one-upmanship, if you will. You're getting one terrorist attack, a terrorist attack from Group A, is now feeding a terrorist attack of Group B. It gets worse. Shortly after the attacks in Christchurch on Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka, you had an attack by an Islamic State-inspired cell, at a minimum, whether they were actually Islamic State is, I think, still to be determined, against Christian worshippers on Easter Sunday Mass. What was one of the justifications made by those who were behind the attacks? It was in retribution for the attack by the white Australian on a mosque in Christchurch. See what I'm saying here? Is that terrorists are looking at what each other is doing when one particular, when a group from a particular strain of terrorism, say Islamist extremism, carries out an attack, individuals or cells in the second group, i.e. far-right white supremacist terrorism, see that as their urging, as their inspiration for carrying out similar attacks. So it's almost like, I remember when I was a kid, when we used to pick baseball teams, and the way you did it was you took a baseball bat, and one person put a hand around the handle, the other person put his or her hand on top of yours, yours was on top of theirs, etc., until eventually the, the team that got the bat had the hand on top. That's what terrorists are doing. They are building on each other's attacks. They are trying to one-up each other. They're trying to get or carry out more heinous attacks each time and referring back to the attacks that were just carried out by the other group. So it's almost like this mutually enforcing terrorist network, even though they're from very, very different inspirations, very different ideologies. That's what I think the problem is right now. It's not as if we can say, oh, it's all about Islamist terrorism. It's not. Or, oh, it's all about white supremacist neo-Nazi terrorism. It's not. We have a number of different types of terrorism that enjoy various strengths in various parts of the world. It makes zero sense to talk about fighting the far right in Afghanistan, Syria, Somalia, Iraq, or Nigeria, or any other country that's in Asia or Southeast Asia as far as I'm concerned. But at the same time, it does make sense to devote a certain percentage of resources in Canada, in the United States, in many parts of Western Europe, to combating far right terrorism. Going back to what I said earlier, you have to analyze what is happening in a particular part of the world. Which groups are dominant? Which groups are strongest? Which groups seem to be the most active in planning to carry out acts of terrorism? And that's when you decide where to deploy your resources. There is an op-ed piece in the Toronto Star past weekend, Toronto Star, left of center paper in Canada, 
by two Muslim clerics, or rather two Muslim leaders from Canadian universities, who said that CSIS, my former organization, is, is blowing it. We're, we're, we're focusing on the jihadis when in fact we should be focusing on the far right. I, I wrote a scathing review of their article undermining their argumentation. You can find it on my webpage on, in the blog section, www.borealisthreatenrisk.com. But my point is, we don't have the luxury of deciding it's all A or it's all B. It's A and B simultaneously. And the challenge, I think, lies in determining if they're both priorities, what are the what is the relative prioritization of each? Where do you put slightly more resources? And are you nimble enough to change resources from A to B should the situation warrant? And that's tough. I think security services and law enforcement agencies are really good at what they do, but they're not necessarily the most nimble organizations. They can't turn on a dime for a whole host of reasons. I want to draw this conversation on, on, on this particular topic to a close and, and, and just make a plea out there for more considered and measured argumentation. I'm seeing a lot of emotion out there. I'm seeing a lot of finger pointing and blaming. I'm seeing a lot of very wide ranging, uh, comprehensive statements that are made by people who don't have any data on which to base those statements. So first and foremost, can we please stick to numbers? Can we st still use statistical data to make our arguments. If you're going to say something is more important, have the data to back it up. I know terrorism is emotional. I know it is something like that gets under our skin. I know it makes people angry. I know people want something to be done about it, but we have to go back to first principles and those first principles are data. I'm not interested in theories. I'm not interested in the latest thinking on terrorist motivations. I'm interested in how many terrorists do we have what particular strain of terrorism do they abide by? How can we infiltrate them, infiltrate them and how can we stop them? So going forward, can we please have a, a more reasoned debate on this issue between Islamist extremism and the far right? The bottom line again is that both pose a threat, but both, both don't pose an equal threat in all areas of the world. Look at your data, look where things are happening. So that's it for episode 18 of an intelligent look at terrorism. I hope you enjoyed it. As usual, I'd love to hear what you think of this podcast or any others. You can reach me on the aforementioned email address, borealisthreatenrisk.com. You can reach me on Twitter at Borealis Saves, on LinkedIn, on Facebook. And of course, the podcast will appear on a number of platforms, including YouTube and Podbean. I'll talk to you again in a fortnight. Until then, stay safe.